December 8th, year 2005, and uh, today we have at the Ontolog Forum our invited speaker session from Dr. James Spora of IBM. But before we go into our regular proceedings, uh, let's maybe go around a little bit and introduce uh, ourselves to each other. Uh, I will uh, let's go down the attendee list, uh, but, but we'll skip Jim first because uh, Doug is going to introduce him. Uh, so, uh, Doug, you want me to introduce me or Jim? Uh, yourself. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm Doug, and I'm I'm glad to be here, and I'm I really uh, think Peter deserves some real applause for all his work and getting these things going. So anyway, I'm a respective contributor. Thank you, Doug. We are honored. Max? Yes, I am Michael Maximilian. I'm a uh, research staff member in uh, um, Jim's organization and trying to, to help with a variety of different things that we're trying to do here at the uh, Ahmedin Research Center, including SSME. Thanks, Max. Uh, I'm Peter Yim. Uh, I from the CIM Engineering, uh, also known as CIM3, which provides uh, collaborative infrastructure for communities and distributed project teams. Uh, but uh, in this context, I'm one of the three co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, along with Kurt Conrad and Leo Oberst. Michael Marin. Uh, pardon? Who, who was it? Michael Marin from NIH. Oh. Hi, Michael. Okay. Uh, we, we are in the middle of introducing ourselves to each other. So, oh, I see. Okay. Uh, Sorry for the interruption. So, uh, hang on. So we are going down the list. Uh, Bill McCarthy? Uh, Bill McCarthy. I'm a professor of accounting and information systems at Michigan State University. I've been involved in ontology work in standards, um, business process ontologies for OpenEDI and UNCFACT. Thank you, Bill. Kurt? I, I was on mute already. Oh. <laughs> um, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you all for attending. I'm an independent consultant in the Bay Area. I tend to specialize in the area of information policy and governance. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, Marcelo? Uh, hi, I'm Marcelo Hoffman. I work with SRI Consulting Business Intelligence. We are a spin-off from SRI International, and I basically monitor knowledge-based systems and knowledge management tools here, and I write about this stuff. Thank you, Marcelo. Uh, Monica? Monica Martin, uh, Sun Microsystems. I work in the area of business process for Sun. Thanks, Monica. Pat? Pat Cassidy Miter. I do ontologies. Short. Dwayne. Uh, Dwayne Nichols, Senior Standard Strategist for Adobe Systems, and I also uh, work in UNCFAC trying to understand the complex theories of Bill McCarthy. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> Thank you, Dwayne. Josh? Uh, I'm Josh Lieberman. I have a small company called Traverse Technologies in Kendall Square in Cambridge. I'm a geospatial architect trying to figure out what that means. Uh, right now, I'm mostly doing work of coordination for open geospatial consortium activities, and I've been coordinating the geospatial semantic web interoperability experiment. So we have some ontologies from that, and need to figure out what to do with it. Thanks, Josh. 
with that all we're doing there, <laughs> except for the geospatial part, but figuring out what we can do with ontologies. Bob? I'm Bob Smith, and uh, Professor Emeritus at the California State University. I'm too, I'm trying to figure out what the heck to do with ontologies, particularly in the area of triage management and healthcare area with a variety of standards and a need to connect uh, business process management with knowledge flows with an uh, upper and local uh, ontologies. So I think we've got some uh, traction. Great. Uh, actually, I would suggest if everybody try to speak up a little bit, but uh, when you're not speaking, try to put the phone on mute uh, and definitely don't try to put it on hold because that would put music on the line. So next comes Michael. Michael, uh, did I uh, uh, spell your name correctly? Could you spell your last name for me? Michael Marin, M-A-R-R-O-N. M-A-R-R-O-N. R-R-O-M. Okay, from MIH. NIH, right? That's right. All right, Michael, uh, could you introduce yourself? Uh, you're here for the first time, right? That's right. Uh, welcome. So, uh, introduce yourself, maybe a little bit. Um, I'm a division director in the extramural programs for the Division of Biomedical Technology. We support a lot of computing activities and technology development and that sort of thing. Infrastructure. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, did we miss anyone? Uh, is, any, is anyone on the line who hasn't had a chance to introduce himself or herself yet? If not, then let me invite uh, uh, Dr. Douglas Engelbart to introduce our speaker for today. Doug. Oh, hi. Thanks. Uh, this is a pleasure. Uh, Jim Spohr is somebody that... Uh, I've known for quite a few years now and, and get more respect for all the time and uh, watched him move uh, through different kind of research establishments in IBM and uh, now, now runs the research lab for the service sciences for service section of IBM and it's interesting to see how that that's, you know, over half of IBM's business apparently is in the service business and when they decided that that big a part of their business should just could justify having a research lab, they uh, they hired Jim was already working for IBM as a research in another area, and they brought him in to run this. And uh, it's really interesting then how he defines, you know, converting the orientation about services into a science, which which by George it really could be. And then. Uh, on the personal side, uh, he uh, grew up in um, Maine, in a small town in Maine, and uh, it sort of parallels me growing up uh, in the countryside in Oregon, and so that way we kind of can can share background and experience. And I really must say that the kind of things that Jim has started, among them the ones that I really favor very much are he got something going when he was at Apple that encouraged later called the education object economy of how do you make an economic sort of orientation about the uh, objects, the knowledge objects you use in education and how do you do it. And that that was a very interesting, I, I, that's where I first got acquainted with him in that. And the offshoot of that was something called Merlot, which was sort of more specifically oriented, but 
there was a really interesting conference for that a year ago. And so I think he's dropped a number of great things as he goes. So I'm going to shut up and, and listen, and I hope you applaud inside the way I will be applauding. Over and out. Thank you very much, Doc. So, Jim, it's all yours. All right. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Peter and Doug. And, and, and Doug, thanks for that great introduction. Um, I have to say that the, the pleasure is always all mine, I think, when we get a chance to work together. It's, it's really a privilege and an honor to um, you know, call you a friend and a colleague. And um, I, I'll just uh, say a few more thank yous, and then I'll give you a little bit of a preamble on, on why I think service science is important. But the, the real reason I think it's important is it's going to cause a culture change inside of IBM so that IBM will understand augmentation systems and a lot of the work that Doug d does. So this is my uh, grassroots effort to uh, prepare the minds of IBM for, for a lot of the stuff I really respect and, and get a lot of value out of Doug's work. But I do want to thank uh, Peter for inviting me to present today. I, I really want to uh, thank Michael uh, Maximilian for uh, pulling these slides together and helping me get ready for this. Um, and um, there were a few other folks I knew on the call. Uh, Marcelo uh, has actually, uh, Hoffman from SRI has actually been down here to some of our service events and helped us out with some perspectives on uh, research organizations and services organizations. Um, and, and Josh, I don't know you, but uh, geospatial architecture is, is a hobby of mine. And uh, I, uh, I, I'd just like to direct you to a paper I wrote a few years ago called World Board uh, that was my attempt to kind of lay out some of the thoughts about geospatial architecture um, and would love to find out more about what you do offline. Um, Ontologies have always been an interest of mine, uh, probably ever since uh, I was a PhD in artificial intelligence at Yale University, um, where I developed a number of intelligent tutoring systems and various frameworks. So I've always been very, very interested in ontologies and um, think they're, you know, of course, very central to how we uh, make knowledge explicit and how we um, uh, leverage them to improve communications has always been a big interest of mine. And um, as you'll see in this presentation, one of the very central things about services is that the client and provider have to really have a deep understanding of each other. And I think ontologies are really going to be very important for services in the future. And uh, just one other preamble comment for something that I think is fun is um, if, if you haven't seen it, this is something my 15-year-old son Adam showed me, but uh, there's a website uh, called 20q.net, just 20q.net, which is a 20 questions website. And uh, anybody interested in ontologies will have wonderful, fun uh, uh, reverse engineering that website like I did one, one evening with my son. So uh, check that out if, uh, if you get a chance. Um, especially if you have kids, I think it's a fun, a fun thing to explore. So, um, on, onward to the talk. Oh, one, one other point I wanted to mention. I, I missed the name of the person from um, Michigan State University, 
but we work very closely with Marietta Baba, who's the Dean of Social Sciences there at MSU, uh, and she's had a lot of influence on our thinking as we've developed this, uh, this idea. That's Bill McCarthy. Yeah, I'll check her out. So okay, great. Yeah. So, okay, so let's let's get into the talk, and, and we've got plenty of time, so please feel free to interrupt, and I'll, I'll try to leave pauses, like one right now. Um, if folks have questions or comments, please feel free to interrupt me. So, um, uh, going on to uh, slide two now, um, just taking a second to update here. Um, the, uh, I guess one of the first things I want to say is anytime I give a talk, I try to promote uh, one of the good books I've just read in the past week. And this is a really good book that I've read in the last week. And this one's relevant to the topic because uh, Bob Blushko is also um, teaching a course on document engineering and service science in 2006 at Berkeley. So uh, Bob is one of uh, our service science pioneers. Um, the, this book, I think, should be uh, of interest to the folks in the Ontolog Forum um, because if you look at this book, he spends quite a bit of time talking about semantics and the semantics of documents. And um, so I really urge you to take a look at this book if, if you get a chance. If, if you haven't, uh, if, if anybody has uh, had a chance to look at this uh, book, I'd be very interested in, in hearing your uh, comments on it. Um, Back, yeah, Bob Lushko has been uh, uh, with us in, in, on our, at our events uh, a couple or three times, and Tim McGraw actually is a member of Ontolock and, of course, a colleague of some of us uh, at the uh, Oasis UBL Technical Committee. So great, great. So it looks like there's already some. And this is Dwayne Nicola, actually. My comment is on the cover of the book. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, I liked it a lot. Good, good. Yeah, we, we think pretty highly of it as well. And, and one of my colleagues from IBM, uh, David Cohn, wrote one of the prefaces and just so you know, David runs the area of um, IBM research called business informatics, which is very related to services research, and it's all about modeling businesses and so forth. So going on to um, uh, slide number three, which is uh, really the first real slide of the talk, um, what I'd like to try to go over today is what is SSME, or a science of services, and there's some pretty basic questions around service science that I'd like to answer in the first few slides. Um, I think you'll discover that I, I, I think uh, services is a, um, a, a very poorly understood but incredibly important uh, part of our society, and it's something that deserves a lot more attention than it's been getting. Um, uh, the next thing is uh, I'll spend a few slides uh, talking about how service science and SSME relate to uh, the Ontolog Forum, and uh, and then we'll talk about some of uh, what might be interesting next steps to take. So, if you, um, uh, I'll, I'll advance to slide number four, and uh, let's start with what is SSME or Services Science Management and Engineering. And really what it is, is it's an urgent call to action. 
<clears throat> to become more systematic about innovation and services. And you can think of service innovation as complementing product innovation and process innovation methods. I think a lot of people are familiar with product innovation and process innovation, but folks are a lot less familiar with uh, services innovation. And um, if, if one is trying to uh, innovate, it's uh, very important uh, to have an, a fundamental science that underlies that innovation area. So that's what service science is about uh, primarily. Uh, it's also a proposed academic discipline. It draws on many existing disciplines, so some, some might call it a multidiscipline, and it aims to integrate them into a new specialty. It's also a proposed research area, and it's the uh, research area that that tries to understand service systems, and the next slide will define what I mean by service systems. But service systems are fascinating because they're both designed like uh, computer systems, but they also evolve like uh, linguistics and linguistic and social systems. And service systems have these fascinating scale-emergent properties like economic systems. And for those not familiar with scale-emergent properties, think of things like insurance companies. Uh, insurance companies don't make sense when you've got three people in the economic system, but when you get, you know, thousands or millions, then insurance uh, systems, insurance mechanisms make a lot more sense. So let's uh, jump into uh, the definition of uh, SSME, which is the application of scientific management and engineering disciplines to tasks that one organization beneficially performs for and with another, which is what we mean by services. Now, if this, uh, this uh, looks like it was designed by committee. In fact, this, this name was, in fact, designed by committee here at IBM um, because we really didn't want to um, call it service engineering because that would make it over only in the engineering schools. We didn't want to call it service management because that would place it in the business schools. And we didn't really just want to call it service science either because that, that was um, kind of ambiguous and might be just associated with some of the social science. Um, so what SSME uh, proposes to do is to make <clears throat> productivity, quality, compliance, sustainability, learning rates, and innovation rates more predictable in the service sector, especially in complex organization-to-organization -organization services like business-to-business -business services, nation-to-nation -nation services, and organization-to-population um, services. And this is where I, I really want to start drawing some of the connections to Doug, Doug's work uh, when he talks about improvement communities and how do we make um, improvement more predictable. Um, this, is, this is what we would like to do. And, and to just give you a sense of this, um, think about Moore's Law. Moore's Law made um, progress in, um, you know, packing transistors onto chips and, 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 um, uh, and in various other, you know, computer processing and storage made, um, made it possible to be very um, predictive about how, how much performance uh, improvements would be. And so various organizations and whole ecosystems, industry ecosystems, could start coordinating around that predictability that Moore's Law gave you. But if, but if you look at, at the service sector, um, 
you know, we don't have that predictability yet, and, and yet if we had it, it would call be... Dr. Home. Hello? Oh, sorry. Somebody forgot to be on mute. Um, if there are questions, though, please feel free to just interrupt. So what would it mean to get, like, learning on, on a Moore's Law, where you could predict that the learning quality or or learning productivity would be going up in predictable ways each year. So this is this is one of the grand challenges of SSME, is to make service system productivity, quality, and other types of improvements more predictable. Um, definition of services. Services are anything of economic value that cannot be dropped on your foot. And the, the oops, uh, here we go. Um, the, uh, I do have a question at this point. Sure. Uh, do you consider things like rights, um, you know, stock ownership, uh, uh, land rights, etc., as services? Yeah, any kind of promise, as you'll see in the rest of this definition, you know, anything, anything that's an action performed now or promised for the future is a service, and and so those things that you just described are are more like promises for the future. Okay, so um, services. Uh, there's someone who forgot to put his phone on mute. So uh, could everyone please check to make sure they're on mute, please? Okay, I'll just I'll just proceed. Hopefully they'll uh, they'll mute shortly. Um, services transform or promise to transform or protect the state of the of the target of the service. And the client may or may not have the skills, time, uh, desire, or authority to perform this, the service as a self-service, do it themselves. So services often create mutual inter interdependencies. And services are value co-production performances and promises between clients and providers with alternative work sharing, risk sharing, information sharing, asset sharing, decision sharing uh, arrangements. Um, and um, I know there's a lot of uh, detail on this first chart, but if I don't do this, a lot of people say, what are your definitions? So I wanted to just put a chart up front that had all kinds of detail and definition, and I even get questions about how do you define science, engineering? So we just wanted to put this on. These are very oversimplified definitions, but you can think of science as a way to create knowledge, engineering as a way to apply knowledge and create new value, and business models are a way to apply knowledge and capture value. And management improves the process of creating and capturing value. So greatly oversimplified, but this is these are some of the fundamental definitions that I think it's important to, um, to put on the table. One other question. I take it from this definition that an individual person can never perform a service? Uh, no. In fact, what we... Um, the reason the definition looks at organizations is that if you look at most of the service research literature, it's in fact about people-to-people -people services or organization, you know, business-to-consumer services. And in fact, uh, what we're trying to make sure that SSME doesn't neglect is these complex business-to-business -business organization services. Because that's that's really the uh, that's really the uh, area that's been understudied in service in service oh, research so far. Okay, so every time we get that question, you know, we, I, I think maybe I should modify the definition and put comma and people too. But uh, <laughs> I uh, 
I resist it only because if I put it in there, I think it shifts the focus onto the simpler services. Because, you know, frankly, uh, you know, usually I say this if I'm in a big audience and I can see all the people, I say something like, okay, um, what, what do you think of when you hear the word services? And people will say, you know, hamburger flippers and taxi cab drivers and, and stuff like this. And, and usually it's a very intelligent crowd. And I say, well, you're all in the service industry, and how come you're talking about those things and not the complex knowledge-based services or the complex organization-to-organization -organization services? If you look at the services that existed 200 years ago, they were primarily person-to-person. Uh, and, and now what's happened is the world's evolved where the interesting services are these huge services, complex services that are organization to organization. So that's why we, uh, you know, leave that out of the definition because we really are trying to make a point by leaving it out. Yeah, the, the other issue, though, is that when you talk about web services, these are always performed by the automated um, uh, computer systems. The, the system itself, you, you may go back one step and say the service is actually performed by the owner, which may be an organization, maybe an individual. Yeah, you show me a service that's delivered entirely by a machine that's not owned by anybody and or or controlled by anybody or set up by anybody, and well, I would be very... Uh, who, who do you consider the deliverer, the, um, the individual who set it up? Yeah, the one who set it up or owns it or has authority or control over it. Now, someday that may change, but for now I think, again, it's important. We're trying to make a point when we talk about the organizational aspects of it, even when we're talking about the machine-to-machine uh, -machine services, which, of course, IBM is very interested in. Um, we, uh, you know, a lot of the complexities, when you're talking about work sharing, risk sharing, information sharing, asset sharing, and decision sharing, um, it, it really is more than just the technology that's delivering the services that has to be figured out. In fact, in our Service Science Reading List 101, there's an interesting paper by McAfee uh, published in the MIT Sloan Review about will web services um, solve the collaboration problem. And if you read that paper carefully, at the, you know, basically his conclusion is technologically, yeah, it could, but it's all these complex organizational issues that are understudied that are the real problems. It's reaching consensus on the definitions and so forth. So again, we really focus on the organization because we're trying to make a point about that. that a lot. Yeah, one small interruption. Uh, that was Pat Cassidy asking the question, right? Right. So two things. Uh, when you ask a question, please identify yourself. That's number one. And number two, uh, please speak up because, Pat, you were barely audible, and it doesn't go very well into the recording. Okay. Same goes for everybody else. Uh, sorry, Jim. Please go ahead. Okay. All, All right. So if we go to the next slide. Uh, another uh, short question about service oh. definition. Uh, this is Josh Lieberman. Uh, one aspect of service architecture is to consider that there's not just something that's providing and something that's receiving, but there's always some form of mediation that's involved. And that may be one way of looking at service as a necessarily complex um, area that there is a not just one person, for example, providing something, but some form of mediation either um, making that connection or dealing with the relationship in which that's transferred. So having it say, well, there's the minimum is a you know, a service provider and a mediator um, may be the one way of expressing it as a complex activity. 
Yeah, and I have to say this was one of the first really big learnings that I got out of Doug's work was that it really is human and tool system coevolution happening. And especially for uh, technologists like, like us, <laughs> we, we often leave the, uh, the people and organizational part out of, out of the discussion of services because we're focusing on all of the complex technological challenges. And I think that's just a, a huge mistake. And um, just to give you an example of something, I, I'm in meetings all, of, all the time at IBM where somebody is showing the technology architecture diagram that shows the servers and the storage and, you know, one of these diagrams is almost always uh, replaceable by another one. But if you listen to them while they're pointing at it, a lot of times they're talking about, and what makes this really hard is, you know, this group over here isn't talking to this group, and, and they start talking about the people and their roles and the organization, but that's never, it, very rarely is that represented on the chart. We talk about these complex socio-technical, social and technical organization and technical systems, but the only thing that we deem worthy of putting on our PowerPoints is the pictures of the technology and the servers, and, and we leave all of the quote-unquote complex stuff and organizational stuff off. So that, that's something that constantly bewilders me, and uh, whenever I notice it happening, I always bring it up in the meeting and saying, do you realize for the last 10 minutes you've been talking about all the organizational and people factors, but that's not represented on any of your charts? Um, so, again, I, I really want to emphasize we're trying to make a point when we define services the way we do. So if you go on to the next uh, chart, number six, um, why is SSME so important? Um, well, it's really for three reasons. Governments need to make service innovation a priority because their GDP growth depends on it. And I'll show the next chart will show you that re really, really clearly. Businesses need to make service innovation a priority because their revenue and profit growth depend on it. And academics need to make it a priority because students' futures depend on it and their jobs depend on it. And um, just to, to emphasize this point um, a little bit before going on to the next slide, you know, most people think of IBM as a uh, manufacturing company, but 50% of our revenue is in services. And if you find, you know, if you look at like GE, you know, by some estimates, 70% of their revenue is services. I was uh, fascinated to find out that John Deere, the tractor company, has 20% of their revenue services, and it's the fastest growing part of their business. So basically, high-value services are being wrapped around all kinds of products, and um, that's why it's so important to businesses uh, these days. If you go to the um, next chart, uh, you know, it's, again, why is SSME so important? And there's a lot of information on this chart, so I want to take, it through, uh, take you through it in, in little pieces. But I want to start by saying that the world is becoming a giant service system. And if you look at the, the, uh, to the right, there's a chart that shows the United States. And what that shows is from 1800 uh, projected out to about 2050, it shows how the, uh, the percentage of labor force in different sectors of the economy. So in 1800, 90% of the United States was involved in agriculture, and today that's 3%. Given the population increase of the United States from 4 million to roughly 280 million people, that represents a 1 million times productivity increase in agricultural uh, productivity. So 3% of the population is doing what 90% of the much more than what 90% of the population was doing in 1800 because of all kinds of productivity increases, not just tractors, but better irrigation, better
crops, uh, better fertilizers, all sorts of things go into uh, making that dramatic productivity increase in agriculture occur. If you look at the brownish section, you'll see that in 1800, only about 5% of the population was involved in manufacturing, and uh, that peaked around 1950, um, where it was uh, verging on 50% of our population was involved in manufacturing, and it's been decreasing ever since due to automation and offshoring and outsourcing. Um, and you see this tremendous growth in the uh, service sector, this, this huge shift. If you went back in time and looked for a, uh, an equivalent shift in human history, you'd have to go back to the hunter-gatherer to agricultural shift um, in how humans operated. So this is just a, a fascinating thing to think that in the last 200 years, this dramatic shift has occurred. And on the left, you see the top 10 labor force countries of the world. Uh, China has 21% of the world's labor. They're only 35% service sector. We're about 70 to 80% service sector now. China's only about 35% service sector, and that represents a 200% increase in the last 25 years in the size of their uh, service sector. Uh, India, with 17% of the world's labor force, is only 23% in services, but their service sector uh, grew by about 28%. Uh, over the last 25 years. Now, now this data cuts off actually around uh, 2002 is what I have the uh, data sources for. And if you look at the growth of the service sector in China and India in just the last few years, it's phenomenal, the, the growth rate of the service sector. In fact, I was just over in China, and their um, head of the, their equivalent of the Minister of Education, Department of Education over there, uh, she mentioned that um, every time they want to grow their manufacturing uh, base by about 10%, they have to add on about 60% in services for all the financing, transportation, communication, and all of the other things that support uh, manufacturing growth. And in India, of course, they're seeing, uh, you know, some people call India the uh, service center for the world. They're seeing phenomenal growth rate in their service uh, sector. If you look down through this list, what you find interesting is it represents both developed and undeveloped countries. The developed countries are all around 70% or so in the service sector, but the developing uh, countries are rapidly catching up to that number. And what's fascinating to me is some of the developing world is jumping right over manufacturing and going directly into services. Um, so this really does represent the largest labor force migration in human history that's underway as people are shifting out of agriculture, uh, going into the service sector, and it's driven, of course, by uh, global communications, uh, urbanization, um, and, and lots of other things. So, so this, is, this is fascinating as, as the world becomes a giant service system. What's happening is new configurations of work sharing, risk sharing, information sharing, and decision sharing are occurring. And the question um, we have to ask ourselves is how are we going to get the productivity gains in the service sector? And for those who've studied this, there was in the 60s there was um, a person by the name of Bommel who coined the uh, who had the term uh, Bommel's disease coined because productivity in the service sector was not growing, uh, seemed stagnant prim primarily. Of course, recently there have been a lot of uh, service sector productivity increases, and that's been primarily due to technology. So uh, 
clearly technology underlies a lot of the innovation that's leading to service sector productivity growth, but there's a lot of other types of things that are leading to productivity increases as well. And remember, productivity is, a reven is, is revenue over cost. Productivity isn't just about taking cost out, it's boosting revenue up. And new business models, new process models, new organizational structures, even new kinds of demand lead to boost um, in service sector productivity. And uh, when I was giving this talk in Japan, uh, one of the people there asked the question, why does, um, you know, what's going to happen when we increase productivity in the service sector? Where are people going to work? <laughs> and uh, the fascinating thing to me is that um, it, new industries are being created. So new service sector industries are being created. So it's kind of like mature the mature service sector industries are gaining in productivity, but there's this whole new uh, explosion of new types of services. And the fastest growing part of the service economy, guess what? It's business services and information services. So that begins to answer the question, why does IBM care about uh, service sector growth? It's because the fastest growing parts are new types of information services. Just think of Google, for example and all of the other types of new information services that the, the World Wide Web and Internet help to enable. Um, and also, um, it's business services. It turns out these types of business-to-business -business and, and business organization-to-organization -organization services, they're just so incredibly complex. They're so complex that um, they're, uh, you know, they're, there's all kinds of possibilities for improving the productivity of business-to-business -business services and, and that kind of transformational type services. One question? Sure. Uh, Peter Young here. Uh, just a clarification. I mean, this is a great slide. Uh, I, I noticed in your China uh, diagram, I mean, the this manufacturing sector uh, seems to be terribly thin. And, of course, I mean, the fact that, I mean, almost everything on our retail shelves now are made in China. Obviously, their manufacturing is produced, uh, are producing goods as a service. So they mm -hmm. are actually uh, doing manufacturing as a service. Do, do you count that as, as goods or do you count that as service in, in your chart here? No, that's counted as, as um, all, all of the services that go into uh, you know, helping manufacturing companies operate, those are counted in the service sector. So another way of interpreting this shift to services is the fact that um, manufacturing businesses are taking components of their business and they shift that labor over into the service sector. I'll take a trivial example. Let's say in the old days you were running a factory and you hired your janitors. These days, you outsource your janitorial service into another business. That shifted that labor count from manufacturing into services. Right, but but if you take it from the vantage point of China, uh, mm -hmm. the, the 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 production worker sitting on uh, a production line, manufacturing a, a let's say laptop computer for Dell, uh, is he or she doing a service or is he or she uh, manufacturing? No, that's manufacturing. That's manufacturing. All right. If, Thanks. If, if Thanks the, 
basically if the, uh, and this is where economists have great debates of how to count the service sector because there's two ways of counting. Right. One way is just taking the businesses and, and classifying them as businesses and manufacturing or services, and then there's more detailed counts that actually look inside the organizations and say how many people are performing services and how many people are working on, you know, the literal production of goods. Um, so there is this dramatic shift, though, um, that's occurred. Um, one way to think about it is if you were in the United States in 1800, you're most likely to bump into a farmer. And if you were here in the 1950s, you're most likely to bump into somebody who works in a factory. And today, if you bump into somebody, they likely work in an, in an office building. So there really is this, this dramatic shift. And we have to start thinking about how do we get uh, productivity and quality increases um, in the service sector to be more predictable. So if we go to the next chart, you know, this begins to answer the question of why does IBM care? And basically, our growth as a business depends on our ability to grow productivity and quality in our, in our services. 50% of our revenue now is from, the, um, is from the services area. And a lot of people think of IBM as a manufacturing company, and we certainly do you know, uh, create hardware and systems and software. But, but increasingly, what our business is all about is these complex business-to-business -business services enabled by IT advances. And that's really what's driving our economic growth. And we sometimes, uh, you'll hear IBMers talk about BPTS, Business Performance Transformation Services, and that's primarily what IBM does. Um, if you go to the, if we go to the next chart here, uh, number nine, um, you know, this is a deeper explanation of why IBM cares. And really our ability to hire talent and innovate in services is, is, is limited these days because of the kinds of degrees that exist in academics. In fact, if you look on the left, you'll see that you know IBM did play a role in helping to establish computer science. In fact, this one uh, NSF study that I quote here says the single strongest impulse for introducing computers on campuses in the mid-1950s did not come from the schools themselves or from federal agencies, but instead from IBM, because we had a program where if a university would start a computer science department, we'd give them the computer that would allow them to uh, start the department. Um, in the early days, though, you have to remember that computer science was a multidiscipline. If you look back to 1947, if you were doing computer science, you had a bunch of physicists, electrical engineers, mathematicians, even philosophers you know, uh, who were doing the Boolean logic, mathematical philosophy, uh, was where a lot of the basic understanding of Boolean logic was coming from. So computer science, when it started, was, was quite a multidiscipline. And um, Watson uh, said around 1947 that he wanted to hire 10,000 digital computer scientists over the next uh, five years, uh, which he proceeded to hire all of these other people and, uh, and help to establish computer science departments. But, but that was an amazing statement in 1947 to say you wanted to hire 10,000 digital computer scientists because the world basically didn't even know what a digital computer scientist was. So now when IBM says we want to hire 60,000, you know, service scientists over the next uh, 10 years, um, you know, a lot of people don't understand what a service scientist is. But this chart on the right here shows our PhDs uh, in uh, the United States for IBM Global Services and IBM Research. And you see in our services business we have technical PhDs, social and organizational PhDs, and business-related PhDs. But if you look in IBM Research, 
it's primarily the uh, science and engineering uh, PhDs. So uh, if one asks, you know, why is it hard for us to uh, innovate in IBM research in, in service innovation, I think this chart helps to begin to understand that we don't necessarily have all of the skills yet um, that, that we need. Now, I should mention that services research services research is the fastest growing part of IBM research. Um, and a lot of people wonder, well, well why, why is it that service science involves both the technical, business, and social? And one way I have of explaining this is that um, in the good old days when IBM wanted to sell to our clients, um, we'd show up with better, faster technology and the clients would buy it, but then the clients started asking for the uh, business case or the return on investment case before they would, they would buy the equipment. And then a little later, they started asking for the organizational change plan before they would buy, buy the technology. So um, really what we see today is when, you're, when, a, when a technology provider is interacting with a client, they have to provide not only the technology capability, but also the business case for the technology, as well as the organizational change plan. And this is what really service science is all about, is this co-evolution of the technical capability with the business models, as well as the organizational capability, which includes the skills of the people, how the organization is organized, and the processes, and so forth. So this is very much along the lines of, of Doug's model of co-evolution of the human system and the tool system. And again, I, re I really believe a lot of what we're doing by creating this uh, service science uh, mind shift is really helping to prepare people to really understand, I think, some of the stuff that Doug was talking about uh, many, many decades ago, uh, that it's not simply about the technological capability improving and automating what people do. It really is the case that you have to think of it as a um, socio-technical system, uh, co-evolving capabilities both on the human side as well as the tool side. And I think that's just a, a much more sophisticated perspective to take on it than pure technological automation. And um, it's one that I, you know, even today a lot of people have difficulty grasping as they focus primarily on the techno technological evolution part of that and not the... Um, social and uh, human and, and tool uh, co-evolution. So hopefully one of the things that we hope will happen once universities start producing, you know, thousands of uh, service scientists every year, uh, SSME graduates, is that people, you know, will be creating, um, you know, professionals and students who can really uh, get their head around and have the tools and methods to think about uh, socio-technical system evolution. Um, if we go to the next chart, uh, chart number 10, who else cares? Um, IBM has been invited by um, an increasingly large number of the, the nations on the planet to come give SSME workshops in their country. In September, I was in China uh, with their uh, Ministry of Education and, and various other members of their government and universities, and they're planning to put service science in their next five-year plan in China uh, to create more service-oriented um, uh, students in China. Also, uh, next week, I'll be at the U.S. Department of Commerce meeting with NSF and this DARPA 
talking with them about how we're, uh, you know, the plans to increase uh, funding uh, for service innovation and service research. Uh, this project, SSME, isn't just an IBM thing. Um, Accenture, HP, EDS, CSC, basically a lot of companies that do the complex business-to-business, organization-to-organization services see the same thing that we do, which is um, in IBM we have to hire the specialists out of technology, the specialists out of the business and organization area, the specialists um, out of the uh, social organizational area, and it really takes sometimes about five years for these specialists through experience in our business to start understanding each other's language so that the technologists can speak the business language, so that the business people can speak the technology language, so that the uh, social and organizational people can speak the business and, tech, uh, and, and technology languages. So what's happening is we're hiring these specialists and then we have to give them on-the-job training for about five years to get them to the level of deep understanding of socio-technical systems design and evolution that we need in order to deliver complex business-to-business services. And so what we're now trying to do is work with the government and industry and academics to shift that knowledge uh, into academics so we can hire better trained people who will be able to um, be more productive and create higher quality uh, services. You'll also see a very large number of academic institutions that we're working with again around the world who are interested in starting service science courses. I guess Berkeley's going to have at least two uh, new service science courses in 2006. Um, and we're also, of course, working with nonprofits and others. So, so there really are uh, quite a few organizations around the world that see this shift towards services as pretty fundamental and that the um, you know investments have to be made to get better, more systematic about service innovation, including uh, you know, changing the curriculum at major universities. So if we go to the next chart here, um, uh, I'd like to just uh, uh, spend a minute here talking about um, a lot of people have a view of academic disciplines as they're pretty static. So this, this chart right here really just tries to show quickly the, um, uh, that academic disciplines come and go. <laughs> And if you look, uh, you know, what this chart is trying to show is if you plot academic disciplines based on how much technology they have, how much business they have, how much social organizational knowledge they have, what you see is a very, very interesting phenomena. Just, just like the world is shifting over to services and becoming a giant service system, the newer academic disciplines combine business, technological, and social organizational knowledge more completely. In fact, in if you look at number 24 there, which is way out on the business dimension, that, that reflects that the MBA started in the U.S. around 1900. If you look at number 14, which is way up on the technological dimension, that reflects the fact that computer science started around the 50s. Um, and, um, but what's very interesting, if you look at the, dis the degrees that uh, disciplines and so forth that started from 1960 to 1990, you notice they start clustering more towards the center and a lot of them were based on technology, computer technology, but they combined business and social organizational things. For example, computer-supported collaborative work um, combines technology, work, and business. And then if you look at the very newest ones, uh, from 1990 to 2004, you start to see the service engineering, service marketing, uh, service operations and management, um, much more service-oriented courses. So um, what kind of skills do we need? 
service scientists to have. Uh, I, I've emphasized this already, so I won't belabor it, but it's technology, business, and social organizational knowledge. And, um, Can I ask a question at this point? Um, sure. You've been talking generically about service science, mm -hmm. um, but um, I'm wondering what is the breakdown between the kinds of um, uh, general principles you can deduce by study of services generally versus um, those uh, aspects of service innovation, et cetera, et cetera, that simply have to come from a, a much more detailed um, domain-oriented perspective? Well, again, I think uh, SSME is going to, uh, the, the perspective isn't that the old specialized disciplines go away. We're still going to be hiring computer scientists and people in the specialties. It's just that we have to change the, the ratio of the uh, number of people that we're hiring and, and get people that have more of those skills. And I think uh, I've got a few charts that are coming up that I think get more into what we think the deep fundamental science will be under SSME that will unify some of this stuff. So I guess if I could, I would just like to say um, we do think that there will be specific things that are very specific to services um, that aren't just going to be things that you could get with uh, the individual different uh, disciplines. I'll give you a good example of, of one is in our services business and just about any service business, you find business people that have to make a decision. And the decision is, do I invest in training my people? Do I invest in giving my people better tools? Or do I invest in automating some component and re-engineering the work? And that's a very, very hard decision to make, is how to do that optimal investment to improve productivity and quality. Uh, certain circumstances, you want to invest in the, the skills of the people. Other situations, you do want to invest in, in more automation and, and reconfiguration of the work. And in other cases, you want to invest in, in better tools. But do we have, you know, deep, you know, scientific principles that allow us to make those investments more optimally? And um, I think another way of thinking about it is this is one of the fundamental problems of knowledge management systems. So supply chain management, ERP, knowledge management, if you look at them all, the one that's been most resistant to success, I think, is the knowledge management systems. And the reason for that is we don't have deep principles like uh, we have understanding of how to improve the technology, we have some understanding of how to improve the organization, We have, um, but we don't have principles that yet, I think, that are deep enough that tie them together. I think this is what, you know, Doug Engelbart was getting at when he talked about human tool uh, coevolution, is it's not just investment in one or the other. It's, you know, in investment in both, and how do we do that in an optimal way? Anyway, I've got some future charts that I think address it better than I just did, but I hope that gives you some of the flavor of, of, of why I think there will be uniquely deep things in services. Did, did that begin to answer? Yes, yes, thank you. Okay. Um, so what kinds of tools should a service scientist have? And, and this next chart, chart 13, talks about empirical tools, analytical tools, engineering tools, multidisciplinary tools, and theoretical tools. And this is, a, this is where I think we're really beginning to get into the, you know, what will be the deep service science, the study of these service system design and evolution and the principles by which they operate. And I, I like to um, compare it to, uh, you know, biology had the microscope, astronomy has the telescope, 
Um, uh, physics has had a, a wide variety of tools over the over the you know the centuries, but but uh, one of my favorite tools of physics was actually the uh, in, inclined plane. And think about uh, you know how uh, that tool uh, allowed for rapid experimentation, rapid measurement of different um, relationships. The amount of data that you could generate with the inclined plane, the new knowledge uh, that you could capture was incredible. And right now, for a lot of these complex services, the way we do experiments is we watch the world unfold. So we look at, oh, gee, there's a business over there that just started a new service. Let's go study that. Or, gee, there's something over there that's interesting. Let's go study that. That would be the equivalent of trying to do physics where you had to wait for the apple to fall off the tree and hope you were just happened to be in the right place to watch it in measurement. We don't have a system by which we can do repeatable experiments over and over. Um, and this is one of the things that I think has really kept uh, progress in the social sciences and organizational sciences, uh, you know, has, has slowed the rate of progress. But now with supercomputer technology, we're actually able, and there's quite a bit of efforts around doing social and organizational and technological simulations. And I think this is going to be an area for rapid progress in the future. But you also have to have the mathematical tools and techniques. And any of you who are familiar with um, uh, mechanism design theory, this is a uh, sort of a new discipline that's coming out of uh, crossing uh, theoretical computer science with game theory. Um, but mechanism design theory actually has uh, terms like social utility functions in the games that they're trying to design. Um, so there's all kinds of new mathematical tools that I think will be uh, important for advancing service science as well. And then, of course, you have to have the engineering workbench to assemble the standard components and infrastructure. And I think this is an area which touches more closely to the to the interests of the Ontologue Forum because this is all about, you know, how do you compose web services and so forth. But it's also more than that. You have to start thinking about um, there's certain pieces of the work that, you know, an organization or a person can do better than technology. So how do these tools not only just work for the composition of web services that are technological components, but how do they work when they combine human and organizational components as well? Um, there's also a need for multidisciplinary design tools, and probably one of the deepest needs, though, is for theoretical tools, standard terminology, measures, and principles um, that will underlie this new science. And I'll try to speed up a little here so I can get to the ontologue form parts that I think will be most interesting. Sorry, I'm going a little slower than I uh, had originally thought. Um, and uh, um, one of the kinds of tools that I think service scientists would be very interested in is some of the work that um, Christoph Weinhardt is doing at Karlsruhe in Germany, where they've developed computer-aided market engineering systems. And these systems are fascinating. I don't know if anybody is familiar with uh, Weinhardt's work on incentive engineering and market engineering systems, but I think it, it, it's one that, um, in fact, he might be a good speaker for your ontologue forums because it touches very, very uh, clearly into, whoops, uh, we're running the power cord as fast as we can, and I think we, hopefully your screens uh, are back. Um, Okay. And so um, so anyway, there's a whole variety of new tools that we're, um, we're looking at that we think will be pretty fundamental in, uh, for the engineering of these systems. 
Um, if we go to the next chart, which is um, uh, chart 15 here, um, we're just going to revisit the definition of services here um, and see that there's there's two definitions on this page. One one definition is the, the definition that comes out of the service research literature. Services are the application of specialized competences, skills, and knowledge through deeds, processes, and performances for the benefit of another entity or entity itself. And this is a Vargo and Lush 2004, a very recent definition uh, from the service research community. And then underneath this is a definition that's probably a little bit more familiar to the Ontolog Forum. Services are autonomous, platform-independent business functions that are published and described using standard descriptions and publication languages, XML. They are remotely invocable over different networks using standard protocols, and their purpose is to allow the creation of flexible applications and businesses. This is Dwayne. I would like to encourage, um, the, the wording is, is uh, remarkably similar to the definition of services from the OASIS Service-Oriented Architectural Reference Model Technical Committee. I'd like to encourage you to take a look at that exact, uh, the wording they have. I think it's slightly more elegant and uh, oh, constraintive, but it, it, conceptually I think it's identical. Great. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll ask uh, Max to get that for me so I can incorporate that in our future uh, uh, presentations. Um, okay, so uh, go to the uh, next, next chart. So I think the thing that's in common between these two definitions and, and deserves to be emphasized is that knowledge is pretty fundamental. In fact, a lot of the human-to-human, organization-to-organization uh, services are due to knowledge asymmetries that exist between the service provider and the client. Um, so, um, you know, ser service-oriented architectures, uh, I'm on chart number 18 now. Let me see if I... Um, yeah, did I did. Just a slide in between? Yeah, I did. Right. I'm back to 17. So uh, really knowledge is the key. And I think th this is where it gets really fascinating, and this is where I think, you know, the, the, the person who asked about are there fundamental principles that are, um, you know, going to be special and unique to, to the study of services, I think the answer is yes. And I think fundamentally what we're starting to understand is the... Um, how knowledge value changes when you put knowledge in different places. You can have knowledge in somebody's head, you can have knowledge in complex organizations and their processes, and you can have knowledge embedded in, in products, everything from microprocessors to, to, of course, web services. And so given that um, at any particular snapshot in time, if you take a snapshot of economy, basically where the value is is where the, where the scarce knowledge is where there's a lot of demand for that knowledge. And maybe that's packed in lawyers' heads or doctors' heads, or maybe it's packed in, uh, you know, uh, uh, laptop computers, or maybe that's packed in uh, routers or, or wherever. But, but the key is to really understand the shifting value of knowledge as it flows through these socio-technical systems, whether that's knowledge in people's heads whether that's knowledge in organizations or whether that's knowledge in technology. And, and really what we're trying to do with SSME is we're trying to remodularize knowledge that's in people's heads because we think there's a more valuable configuration of the knowledge that should be in people's heads to allow them to address the you know, complex, urgent problems that exist for them to solve in the world today, business problems or societal. So, 
given this fundamental, uh, you know, concept of, of knowledge value that underlies um, services, I think this is where, um, you know, ontologies could, you know, there, there's, there's more and less valuable ontologies, too. And so um, I think this is a very, very interesting and rich area for research. Um, uh, I, I also find, you know, Wikipedias and Delicious very interesting if you start thinking about how do you, you know, how can you capture and, and represent collective intelligence. And you also want to ask yourself, why is knowledge so important? And clearly it's one of the ways that help differentiate service providers. And um, service com consumers are always searching for the provider with the knowledge and skills that will help them solve their particular problems. So knowledge really is, is really pretty fundamental here. Um, Service-oriented architectures, are, I'm on slide number 18 now, service-oriented architectures are changing the landscape of service delivery. Uh, there's, of course, the two important movements of software as a service as well as, uh, as service-oriented architectures. Um, I think when we think about how to achieve scalable service innovation uh, in an SOA world, one of the first things that people think about is, of course, automation and artificial intelligence and distributed artificial intelligence. Um, but it's important to remember, as we were just talking about, it's not just all about automation. Um, in fact, autom automation is, is um, in some ways, overly simplistic because you're, you're leaving out a lot of the other parts of the system that are going to be impacted by the autom automation when you're just focused on, on the particular automation. But better social tools and the creation of, you know, collective intelligent tools like the Wikipedias, like Delicious, like MySpace.com, those are also um, very important. Um, and in all of this, though, I think we need better, uh, you know, knowledge representation techniques than, than we currently have. Um, so um, I'm just about ready to move on here. Um, can ontologies help change service systems? Uh, this is really a question for for you all. Now that you've gotten a little introduction to what SSME is and and our thinking around service systems, I'd be very interested in having you know most of the rest of the time really a dialogue around this this question. Um, I, I think you know you 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 can read some of the stuff that uh, Max has put on the chart here, but this is really the fundamental question: How, how do ontologies? help change service systems? Do they help them evolve faster? Um, you know, we, we have a lot of work going on here at IBM um, that I think is of interest in this area. One of the big things is we're trying to model businesses with our component business modeling tool, which has these industry-specific, uh, you know, models of different industries. So we'll take the financial industry or, or the banking industry and we'll break it down into a hundred different components that you got to do in order to run a bank. And you can look at your particular, you know, key performance indicators, your maturity, you know, your, 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 your benchmarking of your components against your competitors, and you can make decisions about whether you want to outsource that particular component or keep it in your business or invest to improve it. Those are, those are some of the kinds of things that we do with the CBN tooling and methodology. Um, let's see. There, there's a lot more on this 
a chart, but I think I'll, I'll just say that one of the things that personally fascinates me is um, coming from an artificial intelligence background is I, I saw an enormous uh, number of early efforts to get really, really formal about ontologies and, and knowledge representation systems, but I'm just so amazed by the uh, folksonomy type style of knowledge creation. It, it just seems that that's... Uh, uh, in terms of widespread value, you know, the ability of people to do tagging, you know, at a, at a macro scale uh, is sometimes, I think, uh, having more impact than some of these uh, expert systems, which tend to be very brittle and, and domain-specific, you know. And I think part of this is the, the artificial intelligence perspective of we're trying to design a system that's going to have the knowledge and do it all itself versus the folksonomy, which says, you know what, we're going to have human smart interpreters in the system. So you just need a minimal type of uh, ontology and knowledge representation and tagging um, because there's so much intelligence on the human side. So it's much more of an augmentation system perspective than, a, than an automation system perspective. So if we go to the next chart, um, there's a lot of open, short to medium range challenges. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these. I just you know want you to... Uh, spend a minute taking a look at these, but I think, you know, um, open platform for service advertising, the last one, you know, similar to Amazon's Mechanical Turk is, is interesting to me because there's really, you know, there's some things that people are really, really good at, and there's no, I mean, and they're very hard unsolved problems in terms of perception and judgment, and given the widespread availability of people uh, connected, um, I think this is just a fascinating thing. It's how do you design your engineering workbench to best leverage technical capabilities, individual capabilities of people, and organizational capabilities. And of course, all the capabilities are constantly evolving. So I think it's a uh, yeah. Um, this Pat again, uh, but you're you're moving toward a, a view of relying on volunteers to contribute. Uh, bits and pieces of knowledge here and there sounds an awful lot like you're um, sitting around waiting for the apple to fall off the tree rather than uh, trying to go ahead and, and set up uh, specific experiments. This is to say, uh, the whole point of automated systems is to avoid having to uh, wait for the expense of human uh, component to, to kick in and do its thing. Yeah, but it, you, you seem to be denigrating the, the potential for uh, automated systems to do things that people must do now because the systems aren't available. Well, I, I certainly don't mean to denigrate automation. I mean, we, we invest very, very heavily in it ourselves. But I think what we do do, we, we do believe that there's a scaffolding layer, certainly. And also, it's just um, part of a prudent design. And I'm not really, I, I don't want to, you know, you mentioned volunteer armies. I, I, I don't view the economy as a volunteer army. I mean, there's a lot of capabilities that are out there, you know, and you have to get, you know, this is one of the emergent scale effects of economies. But um, at a certain scale, you can have, you know, certain reliability that, that um, a business is going to want to bid. You know, this is supply and demand matching on what you're doing. So I don't think it's volunteers. I think it's much more taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of businesses out there competing um, to provide services 
and um, you know they they can design you know uh, design it one way in India where they can have a thousand people on the problem, and you could design it a different way in the U.S. where you know we have the uh, money to invest in in capital. So I think you know our, our view is that you know this is more consistent with an open innovation model. So anyway, I I think you know I really want to make sure that you don't think that I'm uh, saying automation, you know, and, and, and putting more capabilities in computer technologies is bad. Far from it. I think that's, uh, you know, that's a mega trend and that's continuing. I just think that as you think about designing web service systems, if you limit your palette to only those things that can be done uh, purely in the, on the technology side, it, it's missing important components. There's a lot of open grant challenges around this. Can IT services be completely automated on the web? I mean, that really goes to your last question. How can social network systems allow organizations to grow smarter than the sum of the individuals? Uh, will the knowledge of or an organization uh, be disembodied from its workers into a network and databases? Uh, I think that's the, the, the dream of uh, knowledge management systems. And will scalable service innovation depend on scalable service knowledge capture? So I think there's a lot of open questions here that are that are kind of fascinating. And um, the last few charts, which I won't go through uh, in terrible detail, look at things. Are there any scale laws of service innovation? This is really, there's a lot on this chart. But we see interesting glimmers that there may actually be scale laws for service innovation, um, not unlike uh, Moore's, Moore's Law type laws, where you can um, see predictable types of returns based on predictable predictable types of investment. And the last few charts are really just, you know, if you're a government person, questions that you might ask. If you're an industry person, questions you might ask. And if you're an academic uh, person, questions that you might ask um, as you're thinking of whether SSME is something relevant to your organization or, or individual interest. And, um, IBM is doing a lot on chart number 26 to support others as, as this uh, SSME uh, theme gets off the ground. And on chart number 27, it's just a summary chart of uh, a lot of the different um, uh, types of academics and faculty members that we're um, talking to these days about SSME. And nearly all of these academic disciplines that we talk to them are trying to increase the amount of services-oriented thinking that's going on in those disciplines. So um, the, the need for these specialized disciplines does not go away, but um, SSME is borrowing lots of concepts and components and methods and techniques from all of them, trying to figure out what is the deep integration of all of these um, uh, different ways of, of uh, different methods and techniques for understanding service system evolution and design. So with that, I'm going to end and um, uh, just really ask people, you know, we, we had some grand challenge questions there. We have some medium term. But I think, you know, the big question is uh, really, so so what are, what are the roles, what's the role of ontologies in designing uh, better service systems uh, with the understanding that service systems are, you know, technological, human, um, organizational, social systems. So with that, 
I'll uh, end the formal presentation and just see what folks want to talk about. Thank you very much, Jim. That is a real eye-opener, and uh, you are among the first to sort of really bring home the points on uh, the tool, human system versus tool system co-evolution co uh, scenario to this community, and I thank you very much for this great presentation. So uh, the, the, we now invite questions from the audience. I guess. Question, question from Josh Lieberman. Uh, thank you very much. This Really, the idea that there is a, a scientific uh, field for hundreds of questions that have bedeviled me for decades in terms of uh, providing value and services is very interesting. But I was a little puzzled that towards the end you tended to pose the grand challenges in terms of automation, in terms of kind of shifting towards technology rather than of empowerment, which seems to me to be more located in the nexus that you started describing. Yeah, I think I was doing that shift primarily because I was, towards the end, I'm trying to relate it more to what I think the conversations have been in the Ontolog Forum. Um, I, I really think, um, you know, the practical approach we're taking to this internally at IBM is not just all about automation. In fact, I can share one story with you that I think is pretty telling. Um, <clears throat> We have an initiative at IBM called Autonomic Systems. And, auto, you know, if you look at our data centers, and we have these huge data centers that we, we operate all around the world, and a fantasy of a lot of the executives is that we're going to create autonomic systems so there are going to be no people in these data centers. Lights out. Just, you know, and there are factories like that in automation. I was recently at a carpet mill that was uh, multi-acre. I think it was like a 16-acre carpet mill in Georgia, and there were five people running it. And machines would show up with chemicals and drop them off, and carpet machine uh, trucks would show up and haul off the carpet, and there's just five people at a dashboard. And so I think there's this fantasy of um, autonomic systems because uh, essentially 80% of the cost of running these data centers is the people cost. And so a lot of investment has gone into autonomic systems, but we actually sent our business anthropologist in when my group started, and some of the executives were complaining, gee, why aren't we getting the returns from all this investment we're making in autonomic systems? Why, why, why are the costs going down? And what our finding was, if you analyze the actual activities of these people, only about 10 or 15% of the time were they twiddling the knobs on the technology. The rest of the time, they were negotiating with the clients about what upgrades would occur, when they would occur, how they would occur, taking care of you know issues and reconfigurations and renegotiations of particular things. It was all this human-to-human, organization-to-organization negotiation, just like in this McAfee paper on you know will XML and web services solve collaboration. And this is the fantasy of automation that, yes, even yes, you can build systems that can understand that or recognize that pattern, but if you really look at the activities that people are doing, you often discover it's, it's, not, the, uh, it's, not, the, it's not the thing that uh, you're working on automating. It's these other things <clears throat> that are more inherently dealing with the 
policies and procedures and governance and, and, and all of these other complex social system sides. So, um, I had a question about that. I, I, I've seen the ads on TV for mm -hmm. IBM talking about self-healing systems, etc. But um, yep. I got the impression this is still pretty much future technology that they're working on it, but yep. they're not really implemented yet. Well, actually, we have quite a bit of it that we implement out there, and there's some really good stuff. I don't mean to denigrate uh, the autonomic stuff that's going on here. I, I, when I when I give these um, scenarios, I'm just saying what we you have to be sophisticated about how you look at work. No, no, I, I, I accept your point, but I was just wondering about that that specific thing, whether, okay. whether in fact whether in fact these self-healing systems and autonomic systems are really operational or whether they're still uh, tinkering with the, the nuts and bolts. Oh, no, we have all kinds of uh, server technology that's very autonomic. So when failures occur, you know, you don't even notice it. And um, many people do that, too. It's, uh, yeah, no, Sun has it. I mean, yeah, I don't mean to, yeah. to say this is IBM alone. This is... Uh, no, the sim uh, I don't know who asked the question, but at the simplest standpoint, uh, you know, using SOA and the concept of the service bus, you know, you install a platform and put in components one, three, five, and six, and they go in and they configure themselves and they talk to some sort of a registry to basically allow each of them to see that the other one is here and know what they should call it for, similar to how applications use the Windows registry to configure, self-configure a Windows system. Uh, when somebody comes in later and says, I'm going to now install component four, as part of the installation, it goes in, it looks at one, three, five, and six, and goes, wow, they're there, so I don't have to do those. And if I install myself, I configure myself to use those things for the things that they want to be used for, but at the same time, it'll also make entries basically stating to those things that, hey, I am now part of the system. Right. Uh, please reconfigure yourself to use me for these things. Yeah, yeah, I'm aware they have, they have certain levels there, but... Um what I've seen in discussions is, is things like using the, the SIM, the CIM model, uh, as, as the basis for an ontology, say, of um, a, computer, a, a network system generally so that uh, the machine would understand everything that's going on in the network. And, and you wouldn't simply have simple failover between local groups, which are already predefined, but, but uh, a higher level of analysis capability. And mm -hmm. That's sort of what they're talking about doing. I didn't think that would operational yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that question and perspective. I guess my question to you all is, um, given the conversations that you've had in the Santalog Forum and the, and the work that you're all doing with, you know, ontologies and, and semantic web services, um, how do you see, you know, if, if you were designing a, a curriculum an SSME curriculum, um, how would you introduce, you know, the concepts of ontology in a way that you think really, you know, supports, would really support the curriculum? Because it's got to be this balance between technology, business, and social organizational. Um, I'm just curious if anybody has perspectives or ideas on, on, on how they would introduce that in this curriculum. Well, this is past, since nobody else is jumping in, I'll say. Uh, you know, in my view, the ontology is, is pre pretty much for the computer. You know, the computer ontology is for the computer to use. And, and um, mm -hmm. the 80% the, the or so or 90% of the um, 
the problems and systems you do are really social things may may have a little impact. The ontology may have a little impact on that. Uh, what it's intended to do is to allow all the machines to to make decisions where they're allowed to make decisions. And uh, in uh, service, in, in um, web services specifically, the big question is how, uh, as you've already alluded to it, how, how does a, um, a vendor and a user agree on, on what they're looking for? And in, in that respect, uh, I think that's where the uh, having a common ontology between vendor and user is pretty critical. Mm -hmm. If the service is widespread, then having a, a very widespread common ontology is, again, indispensable for that, uh, to, for, for, for the user to be able to specify what the user wants and the vendor to recognize what it wants. They, they, mm -hmm. need, they need some kind of uh, common terminology. The ontology can be useful there. Okay. I think that's a good perspective. I'd, I'd be interested if yeah. other people want to share their perspective. I, I'll give you my perspective on it at the end, but I've been... But I'd love to hear more more of your perspectives. Yep. Peter Yim here. Maybe I'll I'll jump in and and we'll be looking at how we started uh, with the charter of the Ontolog Forum. First of all, I, I think that there should be a sort of clear differentiation and sort of uh, clarification that there is a formal ontology, which which is the definition most ontologists would take and then there is the informal ontology uh, which is the broader scope whereby uh, is the shared commitment and shared understanding whether it's between uh, machine to machine or machine to human or human to human and I think that clarification is important and the study uh, uh, and analysis of both would be uh, crucial to advance the, the, the whole uh, arts and science of on, ontological engineering and semantic technologies. Uh, I don't, personally at least, I don't think just sort of uh, ref uh, restricting the scope to the uh, logic, uh, logical representation uh, is going to solve all our problems. It definitely would solve a certain class of problems and I totally agree with Jim's and obviously Doug's perspective that the human and tool system coevolution is the end game that we need to address. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's great perspective, Peter. I, I just made a few notes from that. Do other people have perspective on this? Someone this is uh, Josh Lieberman again. Uh, you know, we are just finishing up uh, this interoperability experiment and looking at geospatial semantic web operations, which is really to take services uh, for uh, feature information and uh, catalogs for discovering feature information and ask how semantic technology can help them. And what it keeps coming down to again and again is the role of mediation, of uh, having a, a domain of need and a domain of information or knowledge or skill and the difficulty being putting those together. Uh, so that really would tends to be my focus that, you know, ontologies help machines help people. This is Dwayne. As 
chair of the SOARMTC and OASIS, we've had numerous discussions on this topic, especially with relationship to SOA. And one of the, the core uh, components of the reference model for SOA is the uh, service description, which describes the aspects of the service that potential invokers or consumers of the service would need to know and understand. And it's the latter word, understand, which places a strong emphasis on some sort of a shared understanding or shared conceptualization of what that service description represents, which is sort of, if you, in, if you can infer from that, it would be a requirement for some form of an ontology or some sort of a uh, crosswalk between multiple domains so that if you're calling a service in a computer in another country, you can somehow understand the things that that service will do, the service policies, which if ignored may fail an invocation request. The two biggest kind of, uh, I guess, uh, requirements that come out of that, uh, one is the ontology itself, but the second thing is really some sort of a referencing mechanism whereby there is an ability to do dynamic lookups on understanding what this thing means in this context and how to translate that sort of on the fly to this thing in that context. Uh, for the reason that's an extremely complicated process or extremely complicated methodology to make happen, um, the whole notion of kind of ad hoc binding of SOA is probably far off still because you know, all of these interactions are going to require a human being to kind of say, you know, is this what we really want to do? And it does span all aspects of a stack, as you mentioned, from technology to the people, the social, the cultural interactions. Uh, the whole notion that if I have a company, I'm going to use a service from BMW to buy a fleet of cars is ludicrous because typically a human being will want to look at the cars and test drive them, not just have a computer figure out where is the cheapest place to buy BMWs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, it, it's, no, it's good to note, too, that we have this thing called the parking lot, which is where we park topics we don't want to discuss anymore because they tend to be sinkholes. Yeah. And uh, we have actually in one corner of the parking lot a sinkhole, and semantics and ontology are actually the deepest thing in the sinkhole. I really? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, I, I happen to be in that sinkhole. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we all are. We all realize the importance of it, but they... It's more a question of how do you represent it. So everything in the reference model sort of has semantics and some notion of a connection to some ontological reasoning. The the problem is how do we represent that? If something is everywhere, do you need to even call it out? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. semantics are there whether they're they're specifically mentioned or not. Yeah, I think to get the coevolution of the human system and the tool system really into high gear. As, as Doug envisions it and as, as I uh, would aspire to help IBM uh, get our, our uh, human tool system coevolution into high gear. I think this becomes a fundamental uh, problem because I do believe, you know, just to make it grounded and concrete, we all use similar terminology, but we have very very different uh, mental models and semantics associated with them. And so one could envision a, 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 a wiki where, you know, uh, sort of like uh, Wikipedia, but not only are there alternative definitions, you know, there's a standard definition, but there's also, you know, you can see how um, different organizations and different individual people 
define it and talk about it and how they're different. And if you look at this Bob Blushko book on document engineering, he spends a huge amount of time talking about how you negotiate um, all of the differences between you know, the receiver of the document and the sender of the document and how they understand the document and what the implications of those things are. So it really is a, you know, it's a complex negotiation, but I, I find we don't really have many things like a Wikipedia that show all of these, these variants and where people are not on the same page, and it might accelerate, you know, getting on the same page if people had a clearer perspective of, of where their differences. And, and the way this relates to service science is that, um, Let's just start with the definition of services as the co-production of value between two entities. And the way you're going to co-produce value is you're going to do work sharing, risk sharing, information sharing, and decision sharing. And, and just to make that very concrete, we can co-produce more value together if we specialize. If I let you know, Max do some things and I do some other things, we'll be more productive because um, you know, we're specialized, and that, that leads to a certain type of productivity that Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations talked a lot about. So really, if services are co-production of value by work sharing, risk sharing, information sharing, and decision sharing, and we've got these entities that are trying to figure out optimally productive uh, sharing arrangements, then really what helps us tremendously is when we have deep knowledge of each other's goals and plans or, or needs and capabilities or, or however you want to describe it. And the more that we know and have a shared way of talking about these goals and plans and can then do calculations about, you know, hmm, maybe it would be better if you did this, but oh, you, uh, you can't take the risk as well, so I have to kind of take that one back. Um, oh, you, you know, it would be great if we could do this, but you're not willing to share that information with me. Um, oh, gee, it would be great if we could do this, but you're not willing to give me the decision-making authority that I would need to actually do this. So reasoning in an um, augmented way, if, if, if people and organizations could do much more sophisticated augmented reasoning about each other's knowledge states on goals and plans, I think that that could really be a huge uh, boost to service productivity and quality and, and the ability to co-produce value. But it really does require something like um, record keeping, you know, Wikipedias that make explicit, you know, what is shared and what isn't shared, or, you know, some, some kind of formalization of uh, more formal way of talking about goals and plans than I think that we have today between organizations. There, there, there is a, um, this part again, uh, uh, get, get now into the area that I'm um, focusing on now. Uh, there is a project called the Ontology Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group, and it's another one of many efforts to, um, in, part of the effort is to include uh, a project to build a common semantic model which would be a standard reference of meaning so that you can define all your terms. But this um, comes into where you're talking about because um, the, the point, one of the points of this group is that people will all have their own vocabularies and different domains have different vocabularies. And that there's a lot of value in that, nothing wrong with it. 
provided that there is some mechanism by which each of these vocabularies can be integrated, and that's what we're trying to work on as a common semantic model to allow you to define your terms with respect to some common standard of meaning. Now, with that, you can have multiple communities, each using their own terminologies, and nevertheless, they can talk to each other accurately. Um, the, uh, the problem with ontology standards is it seems to be one of these, one of the unique fields in which um, everybody who starts out wanting to build a common terminology uh, starts out by choosing to ignore everything that's gone on before <laughs> and, and, and doing it in their own way. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a sociological reason for that because everybody, after all, is an expert in using language. We all know what the words mean. Yeah. And so why why pay any attention to any of these other people? They don't know any more than we do. Right, right. It's been described <laughs> by some people as playing God. Uh, so it, so it, it, it's true it's true up until the point where you want to talk with other communities. And then yeah. and, and then other other things come into play. And and this is what people over the years are slowly beginning to learn, but the message hasn't filtered out far enough yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that Pat commenting or yeah. Okay. Yeah, Pat, uh, to, to your point about we all feel like we're experts on language, um, one of our service science reading list 101 papers that uh, bears directly on that topic is a paper by Richard Nelson, and uh, he's at Columbia. He's one of the, the, the grandfathers of the whole notion of technology evolution. And he wrote a wonderful paper called the, On the Uneven Evolution of Human Know-How. And um, basically what he shows is where you have areas like education or, you know, wherever the common person feels like they're an expert because they've been through it, um, there's slower progress than in areas <laughs> where you can build the professional fence and say, no, you're not an expert. <laughs> and then you get a smaller group of, quote, unquote, well, experts who are then able to reach consensus much, much faster. And so it's a fascinating paper that just... Uh, <laughs> what was the name of the author? It's, uh, Please note that your conference will expire in 10 minutes. Okay, once again. <laughs> yeah, Richard Nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N, right. and it's called On the Uneven Evolution of Human Know-How. Right, okay. And it's a fascinating paper. I haven't seen that yet. So I, I guess everyone heard that prompt. I mean, we have another 10 minutes. Uh, actually, I mean, while while we are clarifying on names, I mean, uh, Jim, could you go back on this uh, gentleman in, I believe, Germany, uh, Weinhardt or Einhardt, uh, that you? Yeah, well, Weinhardt. His name is. I think he's the second author on the reference on that chart that showed computer-aided market engineering. Uh -huh. And it's W E I N H A R D T. Good. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff there. Yeah, yeah uh, talking about how ontology would be important. I mean, I I, I love the the way uh, Steve Ray uh, used to uh, paraphrase it. Is, is Steve, uh, are you on the call? Uh, no, he he isn't. Uh, Steve Ray from NIST uh, uh, usually uh, tells us that. I mean, in the in the industrial era, I mean, this uh, role is to play steward to the uh, 
KMS, the kilogram, the meter, and the second. And in the knowledge era, maybe uh, capturing the standards of meaning is a central role whereby, I mean, one will have to, I mean, uh, making it into a science, we'll have to study more deeply what is meaning, uh, what are the tolerances, uh, distances, I mean, when are they uh, considered to be equivalent or the same or different. I mean, even when, when one makes measurements, uh, uh, this, the same thing happens. I mean, even uh, when, when you're building products, I mean, tolerances are acceptable in certain cases and not others. And yep. the same thing works with, with meaning. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great point. Um, and I really think, you know, again, to go back to this, uh, my favorite chart in Doug's uh, augmentation system work is um, this human and tool system coevolution concept, I think, which is very, very powerful. If, if, if you look at Chris, Christoph Weinhardt's work, on computer-aided market engineering, the person whose uh, spelling I just gave you. What's fascinating to me is this computer-aided market engineering system, which has an expert system associated with it, by the way, it will make recommendations about new laws or new rules that could be passed in the social system that would allow new markets to be born. And the great concrete example of that is uh, pollution trading markets or the Kyoto Accord for carbon trading markets. And, and basically what you have to do is you have to get a, a mature enough group to agree that, you know, carbon pollution is bad, so we're going to fine ourselves, you know, we're going to fine ourselves if we don't meet our targets in improving, you know, carbon reduction. And once you do that, then you have the mechanism in place to create a trillion-dollar carbon trading market by 2015. And think about the wealth creation potential of that trillion-dollar market. Think about how it will drive investment in innovative new technologies and organizational structures and institutions and how much better it's going to be for the environment potentially. I guess the, the jury's still out on that and for some people, but uh, not others. <laughs> um, a large group of scientists think, uh, you know, we have to worry about carbon pollution. Um, so, but the point is, what an amazing example of, of Doug's concept of human tool system coevolution. Um, if you didn't have that law, you couldn't create the markets and the businesses that would drive the technological changes needed to achieve those goals. Um, so it's just, it's just a wonderful example to me of of how we have to, yes, we still need computer scientists, specialists that are only going to be worried about the technical problems and automation, but the world really, really needs more people who are optimizing the socio-technical system evolution and improving that, and that requires people who can think about, gee, we need a new law, gee, we need a new technical capability, gee, we need a new business model, and it's that um, scarcity of those people in the world, I think, that's... Um, uh, one of the limiting factors on our ability to innovate and service innovation. Please note that your conference will expire in five minutes. Okay. I'll shut up. <laughs> okay, we've got another five minutes. Okay, one one more question Peter? or comment, Peter? and then maybe we'll, we'll uh, uh, give uh, Jim sort of a, a minute or two to, to wrap up. Was, was that Kurt? Hello? 
question? Yes. Oh, from, can you hear me from there, Peter? Yes, sure. Hi, it's Mills Davis and Connor Shanky and uh, Steve Ray have joined in late. Oh, uh, we were just talking about uh, Steve's uh, work on semantic distance. Hi, Steve. Yeah, so he just, just actually just stepped out the door for a second and was coming right back. But, uh, yeah, we were talking about that. We were talking about the conference that they had done, the workshops they had done in 2004. Uh. Yeah, I think that notion of semantic distance and, and helping uh, people negotiate and get on the same page with meaning and their goals and plans is critical for uh, service system evolution. So uh, I'd like to find out more about that. Steve uh, Ray from this is your man. Okay. Yeah, he'll be right back in just a second. Okay. Well, but, but we, we are about wrapping up, so... Uh, Maybe if, if we don't have another question or comment from the audience, uh, Jim. Okay. I will. Thank you very much for the opportunity, everyone. And uh, I, I really do um, think that, uh, you know, as the world shifts to services, as the economies of the world shift to services, we really have to start thinking about this, you know, how we're, you know, uh, educating people to participate in this complex services world, which is all about the co-evolution of human systems and tool systems. And I think there is an important role for ontologies on the technology evolution path, but I also think um, there's an important role for ontologies on the uh, human tool system path. And I would certainly like to hear from uh, Steve Ray and various others who have perspectives on, um, on that uh, thing that Doug, Doug Engelbart calls the human system tool system coevolution and mechanisms for accelerating that coevolution. Uh, hi, this is Steve Ray, by the way, at NIST. I just came in. Have you hey, Steve. Yeah. Okay, so look forward to uh, having you go into dialogue with Jim's work and see how both your work can co-evolve. Co <laughs> So, uh, Thank you all. well, again, uh, this is the Ontolog Forum, uh, December 8, 2005, and today we had uh, Dr. James Sporer from IBM Elmerton Research Center presenting to us uh, his talk entitled Services, Sciences, Management, and Engineering. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 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 Bye.